Hello, this is Empires and Civilizations. Episode 12, The Height of Umayyad Power. With the recovery of Iraq and Arabia, Abdul Malik's greatest priority was to organize countermeasures against the Karajites. After the fall of Abdallah ibn al-Zubair, Umayyad governors found themselves in a hard struggle with these rebels for several years after the second fitna. By now, the Karajites had splintered into factions. Each faction fought in separate places and had strong leaders whose names lent themselves to the names of each faction, such as the Azarqa, Ibadia, etc. In 692 or 693, Abd al-Malik ordered Umar ibn Ubaidullah to fight the Nashtia, a Karajite faction located in Central Arabia. Umar attracted 10,000 volunteers from Kufa and 10,000 volunteers from Basra and marched south. The two forces met near Bahrain, and although the Najdiya succeeded in dispersing the Basrans, the Kufans held firm. Ashamed that they had fled, the Basrans returned to the battle, and the tide turned in favor of the Umayyads. The Najdiya camp was burned and plundered, and their leader was killed. The remnants of the Najdiya army were besieged and defeated in Mushakar. Meanwhile, Abdul Malik tasked the famous general Muhalab ibn Abi Sufra to deal with another Karajite faction, the Azarika or Azarkites, located in Persia. However, it took three years for Muhalab to hunt down and defeat all the Azarkites. Around the same time, another new Karajite rebellion sprung up. It was initially led by Salih ibn Musari, but after he died, leadership passed to Shabib ibn al-Shabani. Shabib managed to capture Kufa, but al-Hajjaj, with 4,000 Syrian troops, managed to kill Shabib and crush the rebellion in early 697. Since the second fitna ended in 692, many of the conquests resumed in 692. During the second fitna, the Byzantines had recaptured parts of North Africa and had expelled the Umayyads from Armenia. In addition, in 685, the Byzantine emperor Constantine IV died and was succeeded by his son, Justinian II. Having ascended the throne as a teenager, the bold, energetic Justinian probably wished to live up to his namesake. The spark that set off the powder keg was probably Abd al-Malik's coinage reform. Previously, Umayyad coins were Islamic adaptations of Byzantine or Sassanid coins, but now Abd al-Malik set standardized weights of gold and silver. In addition, Byzantine or Sassanid seals were replaced by Arabic seals. It seemed that Justinian refused to accept tribute because these new coins did not bear the Byzantine seals. Another proposed spark was Justinian's assertion of sovereignty over Cyprus, which was contrary to the treaty. In addition, he relocated the population of Cyprus to Cyzicus in Anatolia. Abdul Malik's brother Muhammad ibn Marwan invaded the Byzantines. In response, Justinian sent an army of 30,000 Slavs led by the general Nebulos. The two armies met at Sebastopolis in southeast Anatolia. According to Byzantine chroniclers, the Umayyads were so incensed that Justinian had broken the treaty that they hung copies of the text on their lances. In the midst of the battle, Muhammad sent Nebulos a case full of gold coins and many lenient promises, convincing Nebulos and 20,000 Slavs to defect to the Arabs. This resulted in the Byzantines suffering immense losses. In 693, one of the Armenian princes, Sabad Bagratuni, invited the Umayyads to help him fight the Byzantines. The Umayyads took up Sabad's offer, and the Byzantines were forced to evacuate Armenia. In 695, Muhammad ibn Marwan led a successful invasion into the Byzantine province of Armenia IV. The Umayyads were now fighting back against the Byzantines. In North Africa during the Second Fitna, the Berber leader Kassila reversed Muslim gains, taking the important city of Kairouan. However, in 688, Kassila was defeated and killed by Zuhair ibn Qais near Mama. 
and the remnants of the Berber army were crushed. With the end of the Second Fitna, Abdul Malik could devote more attention to the military situation in North Africa. Abdul Malik sent his trusted commander Hassan ibn al-Numan with 40,000 Syrian troops to North Africa. Hassan managed to recapture Kairouan and even take the vital city of Carthage in 695 or 696. It is here that I must discuss recent political developments within the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantines view Justinian II as a brutal ruler, as Justinian was known to have arrested large numbers of his subjects. One of the subjects Justinian arrested was a general named Leontios. Although Leontios had fought the Arabs in Armenia and the Caucasus, Justinian imprisoned him in 692, perhaps in response to the Byzantine defeat at Sebastopolis in the same year. Although the reasons behind Leontios' imprisonment are unknown, Leontios was released in 695. While imprisoned, Leontios was cared for by two monks named Paul and Gregory, who prophesied that Leontios would one day become king. Thus, after he was released, Leontios staged a rebellion against Justinian. Justinian was captured and his nose was cut off. Then Justinian was exiled to Crimea. The dynasty founded by Heraclius was over, beginning what would be called the Twenty Years' Anarchy. During the next 22 years, six emperors would rapidly succeed one another, creating political instability, which was very advantageous for the Umayyad Caliphate. Anyway, back to North Africa. Emperor Leontios raised a massive naval expedition with the purposes of taking back Carthage. While Carthage was reoccupied by the Byzantines, their appearance was brief. The Byzantine fleet evacuated to Crete out of fear of an inevitable Umayyad invasion. Either because they were furious or ashamed, the Byzantine fleet rebelled against Leontios. They appointed their own emperor, Apsimar, who they renamed Tiberius. In 698, Leontios was overthrown and sent to a monastery. Since the Byzantines failed to defend Carthage, Hassan ibn al-Numan captured and leveled it in 697 or 698. In Carthage's place, Hassan started construction of the city of Tunis. Although the Byzantines had evacuated, Hassan faced a new enemy, a Berber prophetess named Kahina. In 698, after gaining a large following, Kahina defeated the Umayyads at Meskiana. The defeat was so great that Hassan had to spend several years recruiting more warriors before defeating Kahina at Tarfa in 703. Meanwhile, Justinian II, who was exiled to the port of Kherson in Crimea, began plotting his return to the throne. Justinian was granted protection by the Kagan of the Khazars, who gave his sister to Justinian in marriage. Fearing Justinian, Tiberius Apsimar bribed the Kagan to kill Justinian, but Justinian managed to escape to the land of the Bulgars. The Bulgar Khan Turval agreed to field an army of 15,000 men with the goal of restoring Justinian to the throne. In August 705, Justinian entered Constantinople, overthrew and executed Tiberius Apsimar, and began his second reign. In 704, Hassan suddenly found himself replaced as governor of Egypt by the caliph's brother, Abdulaziz. Abdulaziz appointed Musa ibn Nusayir as the leader of Muslim forces in North Africa. Using intelligence from previous campaigns and Hassan ibn al-Numan's policies of assimilation, Musa penetrated further than any previous Muslim commander, even launching naval expeditions against Sicily and Sardinia, which temporarily took control of Syracuse and Cagliari. The details about Musa's campaigns are unclear, but Musa managed to conquer Tangier in 708. With the capture of Tangier, the Umayyad Caliphate now bordered the Atlantic Ocean. While positive news was trickling in from the west, in the east, the situation was more serious. With the Karajites threatening the stability of Iraq, Abd al-Malik appointed al-Hajjaj to be governor of Iraq in 694. 
This was the first time that the provinces of Basra and Kufa were fused together under the rulership of one man. At the time, discipline among the troops of Basra and Kufa needed to be restored. Al-Hajjaj threatened to kill any soldier who did not return to his post within three days, and while this may have been brutal, it was certainly effective. As tons of soldiers returned to their posts, Al-Hajjaj distributed the pay they deserved. It was also Al-Hajjaj that was responsible for defeating Shabib ibn al-Shaybani in 697. In 702, Al-Hajjaj built the city of Wasit, located halfway between Kufa and Basra, and filled it with Syrian troops. Such a move helped to bring Iraq into his authority. That decision was probably influenced by the rebellion of Ibn al-Ashaf. Abdul Rahman ibn Muhammad ibn al-Ashaf was the descendant of a noble family who rose to prominence through military campaigns. According to one source, it was Abdul Rahman who revealed to Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad the hiding place of Muslim ibn Aqil. In 686, he fought for the Zubayrids against Mukhtar, but after Musab ibn al-Zubayr was defeated in 692, Ibn al-Ashaf, along with Muhalab, switched their allegiances to the Umayyads. Initially, Ibn al-Ashaf had a favorable relationship with al-Hajjaj, but that relationship began to deteriorate in 697 or 698, when al-Hajjaj sent Ibn al-Ashaf to Sijistan in order to campaign against Abulistan, a small kingdom located now in southern Afghanistan that bordered the Umayyad Caliphate at the time. The previous Umayyad governor of Sijistan had been defeated by Zabulistan, prompting further action. The army Ibn al-Ashaf commanded was called the Peacock Army, either because of the diversity of the troops or because of the splendor of the equipment. Some saw Ibn al-Ashaf's appointment as controversial. Al-Hajjaj had initially considered two other generals, and a relative of Ibn al-Ashaf even suspected that giving Ibn al-Ashaf an army would cause him to revolt. Ibn al-Ashaf arrived in Sijistan in 699 or 700, where he received a letter from the leader of Zabulistan, the Zunbil, apologizing for the previous blow inflicted on the Muslims. The Zunbil offered to pay tribute in exchange for peace, but Ibn al-Ashaf rejected this offer and invaded Zabulistan. The Zunbil withdrew his forces, leaving the land to Ibn al-Ashaf. Once Ibn al-Ashaf captured a city or town, he established a garrison there and a courier service to link it with other garrisons. Ibn al-Ashaf's campaigns were patient and methodical, never overstretching his supply lines. Al-Hajjaj, however, was disappointed with Ibn al-Ashaf's progress. Al-Hajjaj wrote a series of scathing letters to Ibn al-Ashaf, ordering him to penetrate further into Zabulistan and fight to the death. An offended Ibn al-Ashaf convinced his troops to revolt against al-Hajjaj. Alarmed by these developments, al-Hajjaj wrote to Abd al-Malik, who sent him daily reinforcements that arrived at Al-Hajjaj's headquarters in Basra. Al-Hajjaj posted an advance guard at Tustar, but either on January 24th or January 25th, 701, Ibn al-Ashaf marched swiftly and defeated this advance guard. Al-Hajjaj withdrew to Basra, but he was forced to withdraw even further to Zawiya, allowing Ibn al-Ashaf to enter Basra in mid-February 701. The two forces skirmished over the next month, while Ibn al-Ashaf initially had the upper hand, it was al-Hajjaj who emerged victorious. Ibn al-Ashaf was forced to withdraw to Kufa, taking the strongest of the Basran horsemen with him, leaving Basra to al-Hajjaj. While al-Hajjaj encamped at Dair Kura, Ibn al-Ashaf encamped at Dair al-Jamajim. Both armies entrenched themselves in their respective areas and fought several skirmishes. Meanwhile, Abd al-Malik was alarmed by Ibn al-Ashaf's success. The caliph sent his son Abdallah and his brother Muhammad as envoys, proposing the dismissal of al-Hajjaj, the appointment of Ibn al-Ashaf as governor of some part of Iraq, 
and a pay raise for Iraqi troops so that they would earn the same salary as Syrian troops. Ibn al-Ashath was initially inclined to accept this deal, but his more radical followers believed that Abd al-Malik's terms revealed the Umayyad government's weakness, so they talked Ibn al-Ashath out of the deal. With negotiations failing, the two sides fought the Battle of Dair al-Jamajim in September 701. Although the details are obscure, the Iraqis initially had the upper hand, but victory belonged to the Syrians. A significant blow had been dealt to Ibn al-Ashath, but his rebellion was not over. After his defeat, Ibn al-Ashath retreated east to Al-Mada'in. Although Al-Mada'in was captured by Ibn al-Ashath and Basar was captured by one of his supporters, Al-Hajjaj headed directly towards Al-Mada'in. The two sides met at Maskin on the Dujail River. For about two weeks, they fought inconclusive skirmishes, but Ibn al-Ashath was defeated after the Syrians managed to surround and outflank his army. Once again, Ibn al-Ashath fled east, this time towards Sistan, and al-Hajjaj sent Umara ibn Tamim al-Lakmi to follow them. Ibn al-Ashath arrived at the city of Zaranj, the chief city of Sijistan, yet his own agent in Zaranj refused his entry. Ibn al-Shath moved to the city of Bust, where he hoped to find better luck, but he was arrested there. These news reached the Zumbil, who invaded Bust and released Ibn al-Shath. Ibn al-Shath and his remaining followers were transported to Zabulistan, where the Zumbil treated them with honor. During this time, 60,000 fugitives joined Ibn al-Shath, meaning that his rebellion could resume. Still, as Umara advanced, Ibn al-Ashath realized that he needed more followers, so they retreated to Khurasan, hoping they could wait for the deaths of either al-Hajjaj or Abd al-Malik. A group of 2,000 led by Ubaidullah ibn Samura had defected to the Umayyads, revealing that their unity was unraveling. Ibn al-Ashath made the decision to retreat to Zabulistan again, leaving most of his followers in Khurasan, but Ibn al-Ashath's mere survival threatened al-Hajjaj. Al-Hajjaj sent letters to the Zumbil in order to get Ibn al-Ashath extradited, and the Zumbil eventually yielded. The most accepted version of events was that Ibn al-Ashath was held prisoner in a castle in Rukaj in anticipation of his extradition, but in 704, Ibn al-Ashath threw himself from the roof of the castle, killing himself. His head was sent to al-Hajjaj. His remaining followers in Khorasan were defeated by Khorasan's governor, Yazid ibn al-Muhalab who was the son of the famous general Muhalab. Ibn al-Ashath's rebellion was perhaps the most serious threat to the Umayyad Caliphate until the dynasty's final days. The fact that it failed demonstrated Syrian domination over the Middle East, but its aftermath revealed something troubling. While thousands of Arabs who had joined the revolt were pardoned, many of the non-Arabs who had joined the revolt were punished by al-Hajjaj. The superiority of Arabs over non-Arabs would be one of the reasons behind the decline of the Umayyad Caliphate. But for now, the situation was stable. It was also because of Ibn al-Ashath's rebellion that al-Hajjaj founded Wasid, which I described earlier. Abd al-Malik also deserves a footnote in history because it was during his reign that the oldest remaining monument of Islamic architecture, the Dome of the Rock, was constructed, though its builders and planners are most likely Levantine Christians. Construction on the building was completed in 691 or 692, perhaps as a symbol of Umayyad power that rivaled the Zubairi-controlled Kaaba. It consisted of a double dome surrounded by two octagonal ambulatories. The building's site was meant to commemorate Muhammad's journey into heaven, but the Dome of the Rock is famous not just for religious purposes. The Dome of the Rock is important for its architectural characteristics. First, the Dome of the Rock's layout resembled that of many other buildings constructed by the Byzantines. Second was the impressive geometry of two squares inscribed within the circle of the rotunda. 
Though I will likely discuss Umayyad art and architecture at a later date, I will say now that the Dome of the Rock is a perfect example of the Umayyad style, copying existing methods and using geometric patterns. In his final years, Abdul Malik changed the line of succession. Previously, he designated his brother Abdul Aziz as his successor, but now, he designated his son Al-Walid as his successor. Abdul Aziz repeatedly protested this decision, but he conveniently died in Egypt in May 705. Just a mere five months later, in October 705, Abdul Malik passed away, and his son Al-Walid assumed the throne unopposed. For a significant portion of his reign, Abdul Malik successfully fought off every threat to the Umayyads. By the end of his reign, the Umayyad Caliphate was stable, and it was this stability that would be his legacy to his successor, Al-Walid. Al-Walid was born in 674, during Muawiyah's reign. Not much about Al-Walid's life is known until he actually became Caliph, yet it was during Al-Walid's reign that the Umayyad Caliphate would reach its zenith. Al-Walid was known for his patronage of architecture. In 706-707, he built the Great Mosque of Damascus, hiring artists from all across the Umayyad Caliphate. Even some Byzantine artists were hired to make mosaics. Also, in early 707, Al-Walid authorized the expansion of the Prophet's Mosque in Medina, ordering his governor, Umar ibn Abdulaziz, to oversee the construction. Although he employed Levantine Christians, Al-Walid requested help from the Byzantines again. While Abdul Malik had somewhat restrained the activities of Al-Hajjaj, Al-Walid gave Al-Hajjaj more freedom to do what he wanted. After all, it was Al-Hajjaj who was partially responsible for saving the Umayyads. During Al-Walid's reign, Al-Hajjaj sought to improve agriculture by using canals to drain the marshes surrounding the Tigris and Euphrates. In addition, he forced migrating Muslims to return to the fields from which they left in order to encourage the cultivation of land. Al-Hajjaj gained even more power by convincing the Caliph to dismiss the governor of Khorasan, Yazid ibn al-Muhalab, in 704, and in Yazid's place, Al-Hajjaj appointed someone who was loyal to him. It was during Al-Walid's reign that territorial expansion occurred in three different directions, the Iberian Peninsula, Central Asia, and India. Let's start with India, by which I really mean Sindh. Sindh was a state located in northwest India that bordered the Umayyad Caliphate to the southeast. The man who would facilitate the conquest of Sindh was Muhammad ibn Qasim, who was the son of Al-Hajjaj's first cousin. Al-Hajjaj viewed Muhammad favorably, though it was unknown why he did so. Al-Hajjaj even considered the young Muhammad as a suitable husband for his sister Zainab, though such a marriage never happened. While Muhammad ibn Qasim was a corps commander in Fars, he received word that Al-Hajjaj had appointed him governor of Makran with the task of organizing an invasion of Sindh. The reason behind the conquest of Sindh was that pirates operating around the Indus River had kidnapped the wives of Muslim merchants who were trading in Ceylon. For this reason, Al-Hajjaj appointed Muhammad as the commander sometime between 708 and 711, meaning that Muhammad was merely between 15 and 17 years old. Muhammad's army departed from Shiraz with 6,000 Syrians and contingents of Muali. They reached Makran, which was an arid, inhospitable province located in what is now southwest Pakistan and southeast Iran. Back then, Makran had served as a springboard for raids to the east and northeast. Before Muhammad ibn Qasim could move to Sindh, he had to overcome resistance in the cities of Makran, Fanazbor, and Armabil. At the time, Sindh was ruled by a man known to history as Tahir. Tahir ascended to the throne of Sindh by marrying the widow of the former king. Tahir presided over a kingdom that did not extend beyond the lower Indus River. 
Sin's main religions prior to the conquest were Buddhism and Hinduism. The first hostile city Muhammad ibn Qazim reached was Daibul, located at the mouth of the Indus River. He likely arrived in the region around the summer of 711. After besieging Daibul, the Umayyads succeeded in toppling the city's immense flag, sapping the morale of the defenders, leading to the city's fall. When the city was in Umayyad hands, Muhammad ibn Qazim constructed a mosque, where he settled 4,000 Muslims in autumn 711. From Daibul, the Umayyads traveled up the Indus River, while some cities, such as Sewan, were forcefully taken, others, such as Nirun, were surrendered peacefully. Then, in June 712, Muhammad ibn Qazim met Tahir in battle near Rawar for several days. After fighting bravely on his elephant, Tahir was slain, and with his death, central authority collapsed in the Indus Basin. Remnants of Tahir's army had gathered in Brahmanabad, but after a six-month siege, a group of Brahmanabad merchants allowed the Umayyads entry into their city. The Umayyads spared any defender who surrendered and a group of Brahmans, and following the advice of Al-Hajjaj, Muhammad ibn Qazim granted freedom of religion to the population. Muhammad continued moving up the Indus River to Alor, which was a capital of Sindh along with Brahmanabad. After a few months' siege, Alor fell, and again, Muhammad ibn Qazim granted religious freedom to the population. The final city of Sindh left was Multan. The siege of Multan was a protracted one, even causing the Umayyads to eat their own beasts of burden, but once the Umayyads figured out how to cut off the water supply, Multan capitulated. With the seizure of Multan, all of Sindh fell into Muslim hands. The conquest of Sindh was the furthest east the Umayyads penetrated, though Muhammad ibn Qazim did not know it at the time. But Muhammad ibn Qazim's campaigns were merely the bottom half of a pincer movement designed to push as far as China's western frontier regions. The top half was a campaign into Central Asia led by Qutayba ibn Muslim. Qutayba had attracted the attention of al-Hajjaj when he helped defeat Ibn al-Ashath's rebellion. For his services, Abdul Malik awarded him with the governorship of Khorasan in late 704 or early 705, upending a tradition of Khorasani governors belonging to Muhalab's family. As the governor of Khorasan, Qutayba was responsible for leading the conquest of Central Asia, Qutayba was a genius for uniting many diverse people under his command. The early 8th century was perhaps the best time for an Umayyad invasion of Central Asia. China was distracted by wars with Tibet, meaning that it was losing control over its western regions. In addition, Central Asia was not the epicenter of a major empire, but rather a network of small city-states, so the Umayyads could have conquered Central Asia city-state by city-state. Previous Umayyad generals, the most prominent of which being Muhalab ibn Abi Sufra, had led raids into Central Asia, which achieved some success, but on the eve of Qutayba's campaigns, those gains were reversed. Qutayba would not only regain lost territories, but push farther than ever before. Qutayba's first campaign was meant to recover Takaristan. In spring 705, the army assembled and marched against the kings in the upper Oxus Valley, all of which submitted. Only one ruler in the region remained. Nizak, who controlled the city of Baghdis. Luckily, Kuteba did not need to fight him. During the winter months, Kuteba negotiated with Nizak. Nizak was persuaded to surrender and traveled to Merv, and in exchange, Kuteba would not enter Baghdis in person. The following year, Kuteba began a campaign against Bekand and Bukhara. Since Bukhara was weakened by civil war and prior invasions, Bekand was isolated, and Kuteba brutally sacked it. However, this triggered severe resistance from the Sogdians under Wargdan Kuda, but in the end, Bukhara was stormed and its inhabitants came to terms. A tribute of 200,000 dirhams was imposed on Bukhara, 
and Kuteba placed a Muslim garrison within the city. Kuteba returned to Merv triumphantly. While Kuteba's second campaign was successful, the sacking of Bacan awakened every other city-state to the dangers the Umayyads posed. Wardan Kuda managed to unite many defeated city-states in a struggle for independence. In 707, while Kuteba was taking the city of Tumushkaf, the coalition of Central Asian states disrupted Kuteba's communications. However, by 709, Kuteba managed to defeat this coalition and kill Wardan Kuda in the process. Barely had the Umayyads relaxed when Nizak became a threat. In 709, Nizak was given permission to visit his homeland, but he escaped to Dukharistan in order to avoid being re-arrested. Nizak assembled a new coalition of city-states and even obtained the support of the Yabgu, the leader of Dukharistan. Kuteba's army had already disbanded and winter was coming, so all he could do was send his garrison at Merv, some 12,000 men, to winter in Balkh, allowing them to counter any move that Nizak would make. After winter passed, Nizak was captured and executed on Al-Hajjaj's orders, despite the fact that Kuteba wanted to pardon Nizak. The king of Shuman also rebelled, but Kuteba now had the power to crush him. Kuteba's final campaign would cement his reputation. In 711, he temporarily took control of Zabulistan. In 712, he conquered Khorizm, and, despite breaking an earlier peace agreement, he conquered Samarkand and imposed a fresh new peace treaty on its ruler. This attracted the Western Turks, or Turgesh, an nomadic empire that once was a Chinese protectorate. However, Kuteba could not be stopped. Between 713 and 714, he led a series of raids into Fergana, and, according to some sources, he reached the city of Kashgar, which was on the border with China. It seemed that the success of these campaigns allowed the Umayyads to control Central Asian trade routes. Now let's turn to the final route of expansion, the Iberian Peninsula. At the time, the peninsula was controlled by the Visigothic Kingdom, which formed out of the declining Western Roman Empire. For centuries, the Visigothic Kingdom enjoyed domestic tranquility and nearly had to defend against the Franks to the north. Their law code was perhaps one of the most stable and derived from earlier Roman laws. Yet the Visigoths were not prepared for their new southern neighbors, the Umayyads. Reliable sources about the conquest of the Iberian Peninsula are scarce, so a lot of information is missing. But here's the story. In 711, the Visigothic king Witiza died, and Roderick was made king by a section of the Visigothic nobility. However, it seemed that Roderick was not universally recognized, and a civil war ensued between Roderick and his rival, Aquila. Meanwhile, the Muslims were planning a raid on the peninsula. According to one source, the Byzantine exarch of Ceuta, Count Julian, had sent his daughter to the Visigothic court school in the capital, Toledo, but Roderick raped her. Infuriated, Julian desired revenge. Julian submitted to Musa ibn Nusayr, the governor of Ifriqiya and the Maghreb, and assisted the Arabs in crossing into Visigoth territory. The first time the Muslims invaded, it was just a mere raid in July 710, but it was successful. Intrigued by the success, Musa's lieutenant, Tariq ibn Ziyad, prepared an assault force of 7,000 men, and in April or May 711, he landed in a place that bears his name today, Gibraltar. It is important to know that this force largely consisted of Berbers, including Tariq, instead of Arabs. On July 19, 711, the Visigoths and Umayyads met at the Guadalete River. Although the Visigoths had more men, some of them fled from the battlefield because they were still disloyal to Roderick. Roderick was killed along with a substantial fraction of the Visigothic nobility. Since the elite of the Visigothic military was annihilated in the Battle of Guadalete, 
cities only offered token resistance. By October, Cordoba and Toledo were taken, and in June 712, Musa ibn Nusayr reinforced Tariq with another 12,000 men. By 713, all of the Iberian Peninsula was essentially in Umayyad control, and both Tariq and Musa left for Damascus, never to return. Now that the Iberian Peninsula was theirs, the conquerors began the process of drawing up treaties with local inhabitants. We know of a treaty with a Visigothic noble named Theodemir, who controlled some lands to the southeast. The treaty stipulated that the inhabitants would be granted freedom of religion, but they were required not to assist Umayyad enemies and not to harm those under Umayyad protection. Now back to the Middle East. In the mid-710s, two important events occurred. First, in June 714, Al-Hajjaj, Viceroy of the East, died in Wasid. He was one of the most powerful officials in the Caliphate, second only to the Caliph, yet he loyally served the Umayyads for several decades. Al-Hajjaj left behind a mixed legacy. On the one hand, he restored order to the Caliphate, but on the other, his brutality was beyond comparison. Second, in late February 715, Al-Walid died in Damascus. In accordance with his father's will, Al-Walid's brother Suleiman inherited the throne, despite the fact that Al-Walid wanted his brother Abdulaziz as his successor. Unfortunately, after the death of Al-Walid, the Umayyad Caliphate entered into a period of decline. But before I get to that, let's look at the Umayyad Caliphate at its height. Particularly, I want to focus on geography, art and architecture, and religious and social life. I expect the next episode to be shorter than usual, which should allow me to get back to regularly posting episodes every weekend. With that being said, see you next time.